John chapter 6, where we continue this morning. We're going to cover eight more verses this morning. And y'all, in a way, that just seems silly to me. To pull eight little verses out of this larger context and focus just on them. But it's probably our best option because there's just so much to chew on. We couldn't possibly chew on any more than that in one sitting. But just keep in mind that these really do all fit together. We need to see them as related to one another in context. And so if you've not already, let me suggest to you maybe even this week that you take, I don't know, it'd probably take 10 minutes, 12 minutes to read all of chapter 6 in its entirety. We're going to be in chapter 6 a couple more weeks. Uh, Next week we've got some really key verses that just happen to coincide with our celebration of communion. Uh, so, so do that. Re- read it several times. It's not that long uh, to, to help keep these plugged in to context. Now, we talked last week about why people don't come to Jesus, why they don't follow him, why they don't place their faith in him, and, and the reasons are very, were very similar then as they are now, because there was a lot of unbelief in Jesus' day. There was a lot of people not following Jesus in his time, And it's very much the same thing now. In these verses today, the unbelief continues. It persists. And we're going to see another reason why, well, at least on the surface, it's a reason why folks aren't believing or following Jesus. And just like last week, we're going to see, too, how Jesus is going to shed some light on why that unbelief really persists. Now, if you weren't here last week, um, I'd encourage you to to pick up the podcast of, of last week's message. A few of you told me that was, that was helpful, uh, and I think especially in light of these verses this week, the two will go, uh, they'll go together nicely, I think. So as I read these verses here in just a moment, I want you to be looking for this surface reason that people aren't believing, and I want you to also pay attention to the deep down reason that Jesus talks about. So if you're able, I want to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 6, verses 41 through 48. These are the very words of God. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we come to your word once again, uh, and we need help. Uh, our, Our minds don't perceive what is here correctly because... They're bent and they're broken by the fall. Our our hearts certainly 
don't come to the right relationship to these verses on their own. We have to be helped. That's what these verses are actually all about. So Father, would you come through the power of your Spirit and would you show us your Son clearly, vividly, remarkably, by your grace, may we see Jesus. May we be drawn to him. May we be given to him so that he might hold tight to us and never let us go. Accomplish these things by your power, we pray, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So the unbelief, it just jumps right off the page again. Right there at the start, verse 41. They're not believing. They're grumbling. They're grumbling because Jesus said he's bread that came down from heaven. Now, their big beef here is not that he claims to be bread. Frankly, I don't think they have a clue even what that means, (laughs) that he's saying that he's bread. Their beef is that he says... He's from heaven. They go on in verse 42. They're saying, we know this guy. We're from the same place he's from. We know his mama. We knew his daddy. So where does he come off saying he's from heaven? He's just a guy like we are. He's human just like us. See, they despised him because of his humanity see in their minds they were thinking you know what there's no way he can be a savior there's no way he can be who he claims to be because he's human now there could be a whole nother sermon right here right we could just park it right here and have a whole nother sermon but i'm just going to give you one thing to file away for later because that's not the the big axe i want to grind this morning They thought his humanity meant he couldn't be the Savior. When in reality, he couldn't be the Savior without his humanity. Do you see that? That's what I want you to chew on. Not now, sometime later. Without his condescending, without his humbling himself, without his taking on flesh, and if you take me up on my... uh, challenge to read all of six in totality please pay attention to how his flesh factors in there without his taking on flesh and sacrificing that flesh for us in our place without all of that happening as a human we'd still be in our sin and we'd still be condemned no his humanity didn't keep him from qualifying to be our Savior, it did just the opposite. I want you to take that truth, John chapter 6, maybe along with Philippians chapter 2, right? Chew on that for a while this week. That'll change your life. All right, so that's their beef. That's why they're not believing, because they know that Jesus is just a guy like they are, Boy, were they ever wrong. He was absolutely human, without a doubt. But he wasn't only human either. He was God 
and man. He had two distinct natures, human and divine, in his one person. Now, admittedly, all right, let's just concede the fact that that's something somewhat surprising. That's something somewhat difficult to wrap your mind around. It's probably why in verse 43, Jesus said, Stop grumbling among yourselves. You're not going to figure this out on your own. You're not going to figure it out by talking with one another. You need more help than that. You, in fact, need divine intervention if you're going to get it, if you're going to know who I am, if you're going to see that my humanity isn't something to be despised, but rather cherished and celebrated forever. So you can't work through your unbelief on your own. No, you've got to have help. 44, verse 44 tells us, here's the deep down reason they don't believe, is that no one can come to me Unless the Father who sent me draws him. The only way for them, the only way for us to believe is for the Father to intervene by his grace and overcome our unbelief. That's what it means when it says the Father draws him. It's his intervening, powerful grace that overcomes our unbelief and enables our belief. And that is a super duper important idea. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time on this morning is unpacking that idea. What it means for the Father to draw people to the Son. So the alliteration machine was firing on all cylinders. So there's five things and they all start with E. The Father's drawing is essential It's enlightening, it's effective, it's emancipating, and no, I wasn't just desperate for another E word and got out the thesaurus. I I, I stick by that word. I think that's really what is is best there, and, and I hope you'll see why. And finally, the Father's drawing is encouraging. So let's dig in. Why is the Father's drawing essential? Verse 44 is basically the other side of the same coin that we saw last week in verse 37. Verse 37, last week, all the Father gives to me will come to me. So that's the positive way of wording it. This week we have the negative way of wording it. No one comes unless the Father draws. Now, please do not misunderstand this. Do not picture the Father standing there with a scowl on His face and His arms crossed saying, None shall pass. Because that's not what's at work here at all. Verse 44 says, No one can come. That's not the Father forbidding people to come. It's saying they won't come. 
it's saying they can't come. They're not able to come. See, coming to Jesus is an impossible task. We saw in verse 42, right, even figuring out who he is had the religious experts of the day stumped and befuddled. They couldn't make sense of it. They're like, what? And even if they could figure it out, even if they could make the details work out and connect the dots, which they couldn't, but even if, we were reminded last week, there is an abject lack of desire They don't want Jesus. They love darkness instead of Jesus. Even if they could figure out who he was, they still wouldn't come. Because their hearts, your hearts, my heart, by nature, as a result of the fall, is absolutely opposed to him and does not desire him. No one comes unless the Father draws him or her. The Father's drawing is essential. It's an impossible task. We are unable to do it on our own and we don't want to do it even if we could. Now, what else do we see about the Father's drawing? It is enlightening. Verse 45 is interesting. Jesus says, all right, it's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father will come to me. So, first important question, where's that written in the prophets? Well, just so happens that it's from Isaiah 54, which we're all going to read on Tuesday in our Trinity Reading Together plan. And so because of that, we're not going to turn there today. You'll soon enough see... As Isaiah is prophesying to people in exile, this this painful and sorrowful situation, he's prophesying to them, he's telling them, he's saying, you need to be prepared for the joy that is coming your way. And so in a small sense, he's talking about when they return from exile. In a bigger sense, he's talking about when the suffering servant, who you're going to read more about tomorrow in Isaiah 53, In a bigger sense, he's talking about when Messiah, the suffering servant, comes. And so, here we are in John 6, and Messiah has come. And here he is claiming this prophecy about his day, about his ministry, and about how people come to believe in him. They come, they believe, when they've been taught by God. Now, how is it that God goes about his business of teaching? Well, He uses his word, and he uses his spirit, and it takes both. One won't do without the other. All right, so this work, how does it it happen? Well, it's internal rather than external. The Father's drawing, the Father's teaching, the Father's enlightening is internal rather than external. Verse 46 almost seems like it could be this uh, an aside, just a, a parenthetical comment that, that Jesus just happens to throw in there. You've got to be taught by the Father, he says, but no one has seen the Father. 
her. So if we haven't seen the Father, if no one's seen the Father, how's he going to do his teaching? Through his word and through his spirit. You see, the Old Testament prophets, they got this. They understood it. And in passages that I've taken you to a dozen times, and we're not going to open them up this morning, but in Jeremiah 31, where God's law, his word, is placed in his people, it's written on their hearts, right? This internal work. And in Ezekiel 36, where God's people get new hearts and have new spirits placed inside of them, right? It takes this package deal, his words and his spirit doing their work. Because, see, you can get the words. These Jews in, in John 6, they had a lot of God's words. But if you don't have the Spirit giving you a new heart, willing to believe those words, still no benefit. See, the Father drawing people to Jesus is not some example of external brute force. That is not what is pictured here. By way of example, let's consider some classic, high-quality TV from the 80s. Right? Remember the A-Team? Right? It's a, a group of ex-special forces who are on the lam, and, and they're traveling all over the place carrying out missions. They're good guys. They're, they're doing good work. But they've got to travel all over the place. And one of their team hates to fly, refuses to fly. You remember this? The character played by Mr. T. His name was B.A. So anytime they had to go somewhere and they needed to fly... The team, by whatever means necessary, would knock him out and drag him on the plane. And at some point later, he wakes up and realizes what's happened. How did I get here? That is not a picture of what the Father's drawing is like. He doesn't knock you over the head with a two-by-four. He doesn't drag you kicking and screaming. No, on the inside, sometimes all of a sudden, sometimes slowly but surely, he enlightens. He illumines through the power of his word and spirit. He teaches us who Jesus is and why we so desperately need him. He takes our new hearts that the Spirit has put inside of us and bends and forms and shapes them so that we can now embrace Jesus as he's freely offered in the gospel. He gives us the desire that we lacked before. He causes us to love Jesus rather than to continue to love darkness. And when he does this, it always works, which is our third E. The Father's drawing is effective. You see that in verse 45. Everyone who is taught, everyone who has heard and learned from God comes to me, Jesus says. It's just like thir verse thir 37 last week. All the Father gives to me, come to me. 
No one is able to come unless the Father draws. But when the Father draws, coming to Jesus is absolute certainty. God's intervening grace in our lives always works. Now, here's where we really begin to make some people uncomfortable. And I I get that. I want to be sensitive to that. But I do want to press into it. This is the point where people start to scramble and they're looking for loopholes and they're trying to say, but uh, uh," they say things like, well, he draws everyone, but some people resist his drawing. Well, he teaches everyone, but some people, frankly, they just reject his teaching. Is that so? So you're telling me that it's possible to thwart the plan, the desire, the intentions of the almighty, sovereign creator of the universe? You mean to tell me that the Father could say to someone, I want to draw you to my Son, I want to give you to him, and I want for him to hold tightly to you forever and raise you up at the last day. And you can say to that, eh, I don't think so. Well, it just doesn't seem right to force something on someone that they don't want. That doesn't seem right to me. You know what, maybe, oh, this might be it, maybe God only draws the people that he knows are willing to be drawn. But remember, nobody is willing. Nobody wants it. Not a single cotton-picking one of us wants to come to Jesus. It's only those that the Father enables to want to come. Those are the only ones who can. And once those eyes have been opened, once those new hearts begin to beat inside that person, there's no way that person won't come running to Jesus. There's no way that person won't be flinging themselves at his feet, joyfully basking in their rescue. When God draws someone to his son, it is always and absolutely effective. But some of you aren't done with your objections. Some of you will continue to object, and you will object strongly. You will say, this cannot be. This is a travesty. It is a trampling upon my freedom to choose. If you're telling me that I was coerced to believe, if you're telling me that I was forced to love Jesus rather than darkness, then that's not really love, is it? 
that's making me to be a slave. I'm being held against my will. Now, if that's you, and I sympathize if it is, I I get it. I get it. This is a huge paradigm shift for some people. If that's you, if those or similar things like that are your objections, then I need you to listen closely. I need you to look at these verses and indeed all of Scripture very carefully. And if you will, I believe that you will find that the Father's drawing, far from enslaving you, is emancipating you. Our fourth E, this is not bondage. No, it's ultimate freedom. You see, what we find ourselves is we're at loggerheads with what the world, with what culture has told us and what we've bought many times, hook, line, and sinker, and what the Bible says. You see, the world, our culture says, man is free. His will is, is sovereign. You can't force me to do something I don't want to do. That would not be right. It's a, it's a transgression against my person. The Bible says God is free. The Bible says God's will is sovereign and man's will is bound. Man's will is enslaved. We had some powerful verses in our assurance of pardon today from Titus 3. Did you you pick up on that? Describing us before we knew Christ, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were slaves. We were bound. We couldn't say no. And if we couldn't say no to those things, then how in the world are we going to say yes to Jesus? Until the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And if He has to take our cold, dead, unresponsive hearts that love darkness rather than light, and if he has to miraculously and supernaturally intervene in a way that can only succeed and never fail, then so be it. Bring it on. And don't you dare call the Father setting us free some type of bondage. Our fifth and final E. Why is this important? Why would we spend time talking about this? What good is it? Y'all, I really think that it's encouraging. That the Father draws people to Jesus is encouraging. Uh, Three specific ways or areas that I thought about how I was encouraged by this, and I hope you will be too. The first is encouraged to be humble. Encouraged in humility. You see, He drew me to himself when I was still his enemy. 
He drew me to himself when I was still a lover of darkness. He rescued me when I didn't even know I needed to be rescued. He enlightened and illumined so that I could see the beautiful Savior for the very first time. So I could run and cling to him instead of reject him. He did that. I didn't do it. I didn't want it. He did it. I can't claim any of it. Please note I haven't given you a Calvin quote this week. And I'm not going to now. I'm going to give you D.A. Carson instead. Among folks who are still living, he's about as good as you can get. In his commentary on this, he was talking about how the invitation, Jesus is essentially giving an invitation in verse 47, right? Whoever believes, right? The invitation is wide open. It continues, the call continues to go out to all. Whoever believes, but obviously we can see from these verses last week and this week that not all will respond to that call. Only the ones drawn by the Father. And so in light of all that, Carson says this, the invitation to believe in a context like this, strips the would-be disciple of all pretensions, of all self-congratulation, of all agendas, those who believe cannot approach Jesus as if they are doing him a favor. Knowing The only reason I came to believe in Jesus is that the Father drew me to him encourages a deep, deep sense of humility. Now, obviously, closely related to that would be the second thing where I'm encouraged, and that's in areas of gratitude and hope. Verse 44, the Father draws. He enables us to come to Jesus. And we have again this week Jesus' promise. You're not just going to come to me but I'm going to hold on to you forever when you do. I will ensure that you make it to the end. Nothing can or will change that. I lose nothing of all the Father has given me. I'm grateful for that. I'm hopeful in that. And the final thing that I'm encouraged in, and I hope you will be too, is evangelism. Now, Some would say, many would say, a view of salvation like this, talking about salvation in these terms where God does it all and the man just responds to having been drawn, to having been changed on the inside, well, if that's what you think about salvation, that just just kills any motivation to evangelize right there, doesn't it? If God's got to draw them and teach them and cause them to believe, then kind of makes me pointless, doesn't it? That, that would just be a waste of time. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Verse 45, this prophecy Jesus quotes, they will all be taught by God. How are they taught? Through His Word and through His Spirit. How do people come to faith in Christ? Well, they come through his word. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. That's God's ordained means. That's part of his teaching, part of his drawing people to himself. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. 
He has means by which he accomplishes it. He uses his word. He uses the proclamation of the beautiful gospel of Jesus through the stammering lips like mine and yours to bring the good news to people. What did Dan read from Isaiah 52 earlier? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And when we can do that with the confidence of knowing with great certainty that the Father has decided there are certain people that He absolutely will give to His Son and He absolutely will draw them to Him and He will teach them through the power of His Spirit and every single one of those that He teaches will come to the Son. When I can share the Gospel with confidence like that, gosh, that's a whole heck of a lot better than the alternative of sheepishly giving out the gospel and kind of wringing your hands and saying, well, gee, I hope somebody sometime, somewhere, somehow decides to believe in Jesus. No, my friends, that would be what would be a waste of time. That would be the hopeless thing there is if we didn't know. And here's what we need to be encouraged in, friends. The Father is drawing men and women to himself He's drawing boys and girls. He's going to do it at Vacation Bible School in a few weeks. He wants to do it in your workplace and in your neighborhood. He's drawing men and women to the Son, and they will come to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your intervening powerful, supernatural, and miraculous grace. Thank you that it is effective 100% of the time. Thank you that we're not more powerful than that grace, that we can't say no to it, that because of the work you do inside of us and in our hearts, we don't want to say no. We want to say yes We want to embrace Jesus the moment, the very first moment we see with unblinded eyes. And we hear with unstopped ears. We want to say yes. Because you've taken away our love for darkness and you've replaced it with a love for the Son. Thank you for your work of grace. We praise you. Father, Son, and Spirit, how you work together, how you cooperate together. It's not us cooperating with you. You cooperate with each other to bring about our salvation. Oh, we praise you. We cling to you this morning, O Christ, because you've been revealed to us as a beautiful Savior worth clinging on to. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Please stand. Let's.